continuing in our series on 2 Corinthians as we've been looking at this deep, deep tapestry that Paul writes to a group of people he has a, a very rich history with, complicated history with, wonderful history with. And now we come to a, a section of his letter that on one hand we really like hearing about and on the other hand deals with a topic we rarely like hearing about. Um, Someone once said, I cannot remember who, a famous person, but someone once said that everyone agrees forgiveness is a lovely thing until they have something to forgive. And that's true. We love hearing about forgiveness when we are the one receiving it. When it's our time to forgive, we're not as interested in that conversation. But as we come through Scripture, as we come through this letter, we arrive at a section that really just lays out some very stark, undeniable truths about forgiveness. It's one of the reasons why I love just preaching through a book of the Bible verse by verse, because you can't avoid the topics that make you squirm when you do it that way. Uh, so please, if you would, rise out of respect for the words of our Lord will be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the standard of forgiveness. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness. Thank you for the call of forgiveness. Thank you for the blessing of it. Uh, may our hearts be soft as we engage with your word on this topic. May our hearts be humble. May our hearts be hungry to look like Jesus in this way. May Jesus be glorified as we continue to worship through engaging with your word. So lead this time, Lord. Teach us, speak to us, sharpen us, refine us. Conform us to the image of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me be seated. So what, I said, we, we, come to, we come to several unavoidable, undeniable truths about forgiveness in this passage. And the first one, half of it will sound good. Half of it, if I'm being honest, and if you're all being honest, half of this first truth I don't like being reminded of. Let me reread verses 1 to 5. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? 
And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. <laughs> the first thing the Bible lays out is, we will hurt one another. You will be hurt by the church. You will be wronged by your fellow believers. And you will wrong your fellow believers. You will hurt the church. You will cause pain to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Whoa, back up. I like that first half. I've been there. I've experienced that. I've been wronged by the church. Don't tell me I'm going to wrong the church. I mean, what, what is necessary to deny these verses of Paul says, I caused you pain, you caused me pain, we caused him pain, he caused us pain, we all caused each other pain. For me to say, no, 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 that's not true, that's not going to happen to me, says either I think that I deserve a pain-free life, and I somehow have the right to be the only one not hurt by my brothers and sisters in Christ, and then there's also the arrogance to say, and I will not hurt my brothers or sisters in Christ. I will not wrong other people. I will be the one who does not cause harm to others. I think it's undeniable when you look at the entirety of Scripture that we cause pain to one another. We don't, hopefully we don't do it intentionally, but we do because we're broken people. Consider these, these passages, these verses. Zechariah 13, 6, And if one asks him, so in the time, in the day, in the immediate context, this was written about the prophet about the prophets of Israel, the leaders of Israel. This was also a foreshadowing passage about Jesus, about the Messiah. Consider Zechariah 13.6, And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Where'd you get those scars? Where'd you get those bumps? Where'd you get those cuts? Where'd you get those bruises? From my friends. In the house of my friends. It doesn't negate that he calls them his friends. But he says, yeah, I got these wounds from my friends. 1 Corinthians 3.3, Paul is writing to the church, to the body of believers. He says, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? I mean, can you truthfully say you've never been jealous of another person? I can't. There's never been strife. You've never had an argument with another person. Not a disagreement. We can disagree respectfully. Arguments tend to get ugly. I mean, I can't say that I've never argued with another person. Paul lays this out. God lays this out. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. None of us can say we are without sin. Which means that in our sin, we have every capacity and propensity to hurt one another. To cause pain to one another. To wrong one another. I mean, this is how this part of the letter begins, where Paul is just acknowledging the stark reality that we all caused each other pain. We are now in a painful situation that we have inflicted upon one another. So is forgiveness going to be necessary? Yeah, because we're going to hurt one another. And if we're unwilling to acknowledge that, then we're just setting ourselves up for unfortunate denial. 
So the question isn't, okay, well, will I ever get to a situation where I need to forgive my brothers and sisters in Christ? Will I ever find myself needing to forgive other Christians? It's when it happens, how will you respond? When you wrong another brother or sister in Christ, when you are wronged by a brother or sister in Christ, how will you respond? We've talked about this with a number of things. You don't game plan in the midst of the game. You come up with a strategy ahead of time. You know how you're going to respond ahead of time. You come up with your playbook ahead of time so that when it happens, you're ready for it. So if I will hurt those I love, if I will be hurt by those I love, how will I respond in that situation? What do we see in this letter? You have verses 1 through 5, we cause each other pain. So then verses 6 to 7, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Forgive and comfort. Two sermons ago, as we opened up 2 Corinthians, as we began this letter of 2 Corinthians, what did we look at? The word comfort. The biblical concept of comfort. And we looked at how biblically comfort is very different from how we use it today. Today we use comfort as the removal of anything distressing. The removal of anything, right? Just get rid of the problem. Biblically, comfort is, no, get off the mat, get back in the fight. You can do this. Spur them on to deeper things, to better things, to holier things using God's evidence. That's real comfort. So he says, forgive and comfort him, the one who wronged the church, the one who wronged this body of believers. Forgive and comfort him. Comfort is not a denial of wrongdoing. Forgiveness is not a denial of wrongdoing. I am not saying, the Bible is not saying that forgiveness is pretending like no wrongdoing happened. Forgiveness is not turning a blind eye to the pain or the suffering or the wrongdoing. Forgiveness is not a denial of these things. It is not an affirmation of the wrongdoing. If I forgive someone, I am not affirming their wrong behavior. If I ask for forgiveness, I'm not asking you to affirm my wrong behavior. Forgiveness is not a denial of consequences. Forgiveness is not, well, let's just pretend that there are no consequences to this pain, to this wrong. What does he say? He says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. What's he talking about? Well, when you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about that there's a key figure in the church in Corinth who is living in perpetual habitual, perpetual habitual sin, and the church in Corinth is turning a blind eye. They're just accepting it. They're just affirming it, and it's dragging down the whole church. It's becoming a problem for the whole church. And so he says, are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He says, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Matthew 18 lays out the seriousness of church discipline. There are multiple places in the New Testament where you see that the local church removed problematic, heretical people from their membership. They removed them from the fellowship of the church. When I say membership, I don't mean membership like we've defined it with a process and class. I'm talking about that you see in the New Testament that the church at times, at painful times, had to excommunicate or disinvite people who were the source of the problem. So there are consequences to the pain and the wrongdoing that we inflict on one another. There are very real consequences to these things. 
Forgiveness is not denying any of that. Forgiveness is not just plaster on a smile and pretend like everything's okay. That's not forgiveness. He says, forgive and comfort. Spur them on, hold up God's evidence to their lives and call them to meet that standard. So we cannot allow ourselves to reject or dismiss forgiveness because we have falsely equated it with, well, you just have to be a pushover then. So if, if I have to forgive people, then I just have to be a doormat. If I forgive people, I have to pretend like what you did didn't hurt me. If I forgive, I have to deny that there's a real, real consequence to what. No, that's not forgiveness. What is forgiveness? What, he's, what is he getting at here when he says, there have been consequences, there's been punishment, so now turn and forgive and comfort. Well, the word that we have for forgiveness, its root word is the word for grace. The root word for forgiveness is to extend grace. And so from that, we get this word forgiveness that means canceling the debt. It means giving a pardon to the debt. Numbers 14, 19 to 20, Moses is speaking to the Lord and he says, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. In 2 Samuel 16 and 19, we see an incredible example of this. So what's the context of 2 Samuel 16 to 19? David is king and his son is leading a revolt against him. His son is leading a rebellion against him, trying to kill him, trying to take the throne, usurp his power. David is fleeing for his life from his own son. And as he flees for his life, we come to verse 5 in 2 Samuel 16. When King David came to Behurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. We've looked at this passage before and we've said ironically, painfully, none of what Shimei says is true. David finds himself in a, in a case where the guy's just lying about him. Not only is he assaulting him, he's assaulting him verbally with lies about his character. He's denying the holiness of God. So Shimei is not accurate in anything he's doing. David's already fleeing for his life because his own son is trying to kill him. You think David might be at an emotionally frayed spot right now? At a mentally exhausted place right now? And then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along the hillside opposite, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And you fast forward to chapter 19. Absalom's rebellion is overthrown. David's life is not taken from him. His kingdom is not taken from him. It fails. 
David's king, fully recognized by everyone again. Let's bring Shemia back into the picture. Shemi comes. Shemi, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Behurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to, to bring over to the king's household and do his pleasure. And Shemi, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my servant hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord. Abishiah, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shemi be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What do I have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. I mean, this is a very literal, real, canceled the debt. He pardoned the man. This guy wronged the king of Israel in every possible way. David had every legal and cultural right to say, yeah, chop his head off. And he cancels the debt. He pardons him. You also see Psalm 103.10, speaking of the Lord, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. You have Luke 7.41-48. This is Jesus speaking. And He says, A certain moneylender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. The debt is canceled. The pardon is extended. Colossians 2, 13-14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Forgiveness is not pretending like it didn't hurt. Forgiveness is not affirming the hurt that was inflicted upon us. Forgiveness is canceling the debt. It's throwing out the receipts. It's pardoning the one who did the wronging. I won't exact repayment from you. It might have to be an emotional debt. It might have to be a mental debt. It might have to be a relational debt. Whatever the pain is, whatever the wrongdoing is, forgiveness is canceling the debt. This is what God has done for His people always. This is what we are called to do for one another. And yes, it's not easy. Yes, it's not 
the most fun thing in the heat of the moment. Yes, it's a conscious decision. And so we have to decide if we're going to make that conscious decision. We have to decide when the hurt comes, when the wrongdoing comes, when the inflicted pain comes, when we do the wrong, when we inflict the pain, when we cause the problem, how will we respond? Where does this come from? Where does this capacity to forgive come from? More than a capacity, where does this desire to forgive come from? Where does this burden to forgive come from? Can we fabricate it? Can we fake it? No. Forgiveness starts with love. Listen to these verses to go back to 2 Corinthians. So he says, so I beg you in verse 8, Verse 6 and 7, the punishment has been enough. Now turn and forgive and comfort him. Verse 8, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That's where forgiveness flows from. A heart of love. A heart of love for our Lord and a heart of love for his people. Leviticus 19, 17 and 18, talking about the concept of forgiving your neighbors, those who have wronged you. It says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Philemon, verses 8 to 10 and 17. Background to the letter of Philemon. You have this, this man, Philemon, who had a slave, Onesimus. Onesimus robbed Philemon and then fled the household. So he has wronged Philemon in every possible way. He meets Paul, becomes saved, and winds up returning to Philemon's household, returning to the man he stole from and wronged. And Paul writes this letter, and he says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. He acknowledges, like, look, this is required. I could tell you, you have to forgive him. Instead, he says, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. He says, I appeal to you for love's sake that you would receive him with love that you would respond with love, that you would receive him as you would receive me, a partner in the gospel. I've shared with you, and some of you may be new, maybe haven't heard this, so I'll give a very brief part of my testimony. Grew up, pastor's kid, grew up seeing my parents serve God faithfully, tirelessly, in every way. We're at a Christian school attached to the church we're going to. And my brother sexually abused by a family friend, by his teacher. Someone who had been in our house for meals, was part of the community of the school. And I was angry about that. I was bitter about that. For years, I blamed God for that. I blamed my parents for that. I blamed me for I blamed everyone I possibly could for that. And I wouldn't forgive him. And it wasn't until God broke me down in the garden chapel at college with a very simple question of, Sam, do you love him? That I had to realize why I wouldn't forgive him. I would not forgive Mr. Whitney because I didn't want to love him. I did not think he was worthy of love. 
And so I refuse to love him. And in that, I refuse to forgive him. And so I had to, and when I say cry out, I mean literally sobbing cry out a simple prayer, Lord, give me your heart for Mr. Whitney. I can't forgive him with my heart like it is. And that was when things changed. And that was when I was able to say, I forgive you. I forgive everyone I've ever blamed for this. And I had to get to a point of asking, what's stronger? What is greater? My love or my hurt? My identity as a victim or my love? My desire to hold on to this pain so that I can have someone to blame on a bad day? Or my desire to love with a heart like God's? Forgiveness starts with love. It flows from love. So if there is someone in your life who you have not forgiven, you say, I can't forgive them, maybe you need to ask the really hard, painful question of, is it because I refuse to love them? Because I don't want to think of them as lovable. I don't want to think of them as worthy of God's love. I don't want to think of them as someone I need to love. And that's why I won't forgive them, because I don't love them. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were violently opposed to God with every fiber of our being, when we were his enemies, when we were opposed to his kingdom in every single way, God sent Christ. Jesus chose to die for us out of love for us so that we may be forgiven. So does my forgiveness start from a place of love? Or does my refusal to forgive indicate that I am unwilling to love like Christ does? Forgiveness begins with love. Reaffirm your love for him. We also see that it's not optional. It's not negotiable. This isn't a buffet. I don't get to pick around this on my plate. Verses 9 and 10, For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Matthew 6, 12, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Mark eleven twenty five. And whenever you stand praying... Whenever you start to pray, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. If you sit down to pray, if you start to pray and you remember that you have not forgiven someone, pause, stop, and forgive. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. These letters are written to the church. Ephesians is written to the body of believers. And he's saying, forgive one another. This goes back to, we will wrong and be wronged by our brothers and sisters in Christ. Forgive one another. Colossians 3, 12 to 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Would you want God to approach forgiving you the same way you approach forgiving others? Would you want God to handle his forgiveness of you the same way you handle your forgiveness of others? Well, I can't forgive him, so I'm just going to do my best to forget him. Anytime I think about him, anytime I think about her, anytime I think about that group of people and what they did and the pain they caused me, I get angry. I know that's not healthy, so I just, I just don't think about them. I don't acknowledge their existence. I've, just, I've moved past them, and that's good enough. Would I want God to say, I, whenever I think about Sam, I just get angry. So I just stopped thinking about Sam. I haven't forgiven him. I've just moved past Sam. Would I want God to forgive me like that? Does that sound like God's forgiveness? Well, I'll just pretend. I, I don't know if I can actually forgive Sam, so I'll just pretend like I forgive him, and that's good enough. Would I want God to do that to me? We are called to forgive as God has forgiven us. That word, let me remind you, starts with the root word of grace. Grace means to extend freely without merit. To give to someone who doesn't deserve it. Forgiveness isn't optional. Forgiveness, but defining it on our own terms, isn't how it works. God has defined forgiveness. God has modeled forgiveness. God has established a standard of forgiveness for his people. We don't get to change those rules. We don't get to rewrite that part of the Bible. We don't get to ignore it. It's got to be part of our lives because it's where our lives began. With the forgiveness of our sins, the canceling of our debt, the disarming of the authorities of evil, nailing it to the cross. So this isn't something we get to pick around on our plate. I know it's hard. I've said this already. I'll keep saying it. I know it's hard. So perhaps we need to realize this last verse as well. Maybe we've never considered it this way. How does he conclude all of this as he talks about, it's going to be necessary. I caused you pain. You caused me pain. We caused him pain. She caused us pain. Like, we cause each other pain. So we're going to have to forgive. So we need to respond in forgiveness because that's how Jesus responded towards us. And it needs to flow from that heart of love. Where does all of this tie together? Where does, he, where does he build to with this? In verse 11, he says, So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. What do we know about Satan? Our enemy. The enemy of the bride of Christ. We know in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. 1 Peter 5.8, we know our adversary, our active antagonistic opponent, prowls around seeking someone to devour. Satan's design is the destruction of the individual Christian and the destruction of the church. This is his goal. This is his plan. This is what everything he does will lead towards or build towards. And a part of it is Christians who refuse to forgive one another. Christians who would rather hold on to their bitterness, hold on to their anger, hold on to their resentment, hold on to their pain, deny the call of love, deny the heart of Christ, and not forgive. He says, forgive, you're going to have to, you need to, it needs to come from a place of love. Do all of this so that you would not be outwitted by Satan. 
I don't want to be outwitted by Satan. I don't want our church to be outwitted by Satan. I don't want to be ignorant of his designs. Refusal to forgive is playing right into his hand. Refusal to forgive is falling for his tricks. Refusal to forgive is facilitating robbery, destruction, and killing. So not only is it not optional, but it is a vital part of this war. And you and I are the soldiers in that war. Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, he says, you're a soldier, don't get entangled in civilian things. How many times does the Bible talk about fight the good fight, stand your ground, put on armor? This is a battle. Part of war is the weapon of forgiveness. We have to be willing to wield that weapon. We have to be willing to forgive one another. We have to be willing to love one another, to cancel the debt. I've wronged you. I owe you something. Okay, the debt's canceled. You've wronged me. You owe me something. Okay, the debt's canceled. The pardon's extended. I'm not holding on to the receipts. We're not keeping a mental log of, okay, well, I'll just kind of, I'll just move past it and, and I won't deal with it. But I don't see that person anyway, so it's fine. They're no longer part of my life, so who cares if I haven't forgiven them? No. It's canceling the debt. It's extending grace. It's loving with the heart of Christ. Loving others as He loved us. It's loving His bride the same way He did. These wounds I received in the house of my friends. You think Jesus knew it was going to be His own people who rejected Him and betrayed Him and beat Him and lied about Him and killed Him? Yeah. And He chose it. He chose forgiveness. So are we hungry enough to be like Jesus that we're willing to forgive? As we consider these things this week, as we pray about these things, let's apply the Acts model. Praise God for His forgiveness. Confess when we're unwilling to forgive. Thank Him for the model. Thank Him for the standard. And maybe, like I said a little bit ago, ask Him for a heart that loves someone like He loves us. Lord, I don't want to forgive so-and-so. Give me your heart for this person. Make me love them like you do. Maybe we need to begin there. Let's read Isaiah 55 and Matthew 18. Consider what we've looked at in 2 Corinthians 2. Consider what we've talked about as we read these chapters. Teach ourselves how to study. Teach ourselves how to grow so that the body is building itself up. The verse we're working on memorizing, on internalizing. Acts 2.42, they were devoted. A devotion to one another is going to require a forgiveness of one another at some point. If you have not already been wronged by your brothers and sisters in Christ, it's happening at some point. If you think you've not already wronged your brothers and sisters in Christ, it's going to happen at some point. So Acts 2.42, am I so devoted to the bride of Christ? Am I so devoted to my brothers and sisters in Christ that I am ready to forgive in that moment? And then the reflection, two parts. Is there someone I need to forgive? Is there someone in your life that you need to forgive? 
that you have been unwilling to forgive. You will not say, I forgive you. I'll forget about you. I'll pretend like it didn't happen. I won't think about you, but I won't forget. Is there someone you need to forgive? And is there someone you need to ask their forgiveness? Is there, is there someone you have wronged and you need to ask them to forgive you? That we need to be humble and say, okay, if I've wronged you, I want to know so that I can seek your forgiveness. I want to acknowledge this pain and I want to ask you to forgive me. This has to be a part of the church. So related to that, if I have wronged you, please come talk to me. If I have been callous in a sermon and I've casually referenced something painful that happened in your life and it hurt you, please come tell me. If the elders have wronged you, if you feel we have wronged you, the leadership of this church has wronged you in some way, please come tell me so that I can ask your forgiveness. Because the church needs to be a place of forgiveness. And I want to have that conversation. You're like, well, I don't want to cause... No. I want to apologize. So please be willing to come tell us if we have. If we're not willing to talk to one another about these things, then we're going to keep playing into the plan of, well, forgiveness isn't that big of a deal for the church. When really the world needs to look at the church and see a reflection of the forgiveness that God offers. Please join me in prayer. Lord, uh, we praise you for your perfect forgiveness. It, it, is, it is regularly inconceivable to my limited mind how perfectly you forgive. May I always be overwhelmed by your grace and mercy. Forgive me for when I appreciate that grace and mercy but refuse to extend it to others. Lord, we confess the times when we appreciate walking in your forgiveness and withhold forgiveness from one another. Forgive us these things. Thank you that you are patient. Thank you that you are bearing with us. Thank you that you promise forgiveness when we confess. So Lord, we ask that this body, this part of your bride, would be a people of forgiveness. We ask that we would love those who have wronged us. We would ask, we ask that we would love those who have betrayed us, those who have hurt us, those who have lied about us, who have cheated us, who have deprived us. God, may we love those people fiercely. And may they know your love. The people we struggle to like, God, would they know your love? And would we love them the same? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.